0: You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T REMNANT to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the wonderful world of REMNANT Radio. In this program, I've got R.L. Solberg, and we're talking about Torahism. What is it? Well, stay tuned and find out. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowdfunded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. We've got a great program for you today. We're jumping jumping into the topic of Torahism. Uh, It's going to be an exciting program. If you're not familiar with that catchphrase of Arl Solberg, you'll have an opportunity to dive into it today. Uh, We've got his book here, Tourism. It's going to be really what we're going to be pulling questions out of and engaging with. Uh, If you're new to Remnant Radio and you want to know about all the different content we do, we interview guys from all over the world from different churches and denominations. And if you want to engage with that content, the best way to do do that is to jump on our mailing list. We have an email list that goes out every single week. Letting you know what's coming out on the YouTube's uh, conferences that we're doing, other stuff like that. So make sure to subscribe to that channel uh, there in the links of the description. Without further ado, I want to introduce you to my co host, my partner in crime, Michael Roundry. Michael, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. Uh, just for a few reasons. First of all, this is just a great hat that I have on, guys. Um, actually, this the is a Walmart hat, hat,
0: Michael. It came from Walmart. <laughs> it's
1: Josh's. Josh's Walmart hat. I I feel like it's like my head is getting itchy. I don't know. Josh, uh, I don't know if you have a lice problem or what. But uh, it's also my wife's birthday today. And uh, I'm, I'm going Hawaiian shirt. So just because I can. So, uh, you know, it's good over here in the Roundtree household. And Michael, has exciting. that shirt
0: been worn as a religious act for every birthday in your household? I text your wife about this Hawaiian shirt. I was like, where is that Hawaiian shirt gone? I've never seen that before. And she said, actually, <laughs> he wears it for every single birthday. That is like a religious relic that you're wearing. Is that right?
1: It's, it's a little bit of a religious relic. So, yeah. Um. So October 30th, 20 years ago, my wife's birthday, I proposed to her in this and then I wore it for all four of my kids' birthdays. So my wife has this habit, like, I mean, she's kind of stylish and I'm kind of like, I would wear stuff from high school. So she filters things out. And um, and this is the one thing she's never filtered. And look at it. I mean, it's, it's gorgeous. How speaking, could you? It's fantastic. Of, actually, I think I got it from Target uh, more than 20 years ago. So uh, anyway, I got it when Hawaiian shirts were in style. But anyway, enough about me. Uh, Rob, we are excited. I'm sorry to actually take up your substantive content with uh, my Hawaiian shirt talk. Content. Yeah. Good call. So, uh, but Rob, we're excited to have you on the show. Uh, for those who don't know you, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, about your ministry, the kind of stuff you like to to write and think deeply about
2: sure yeah i think most importantly happy birthday to michael's wife uh oh, and then thank you that is definitely all stuff. Stuff. Um, yeah so i'm i'm a i'm a, a professor of theology here at williamson college here in nashville um, i've i'm an author i've got a couple books out i got another book out coming out next month uh and just signed a deal with zondervan for my fourth book so um, that's becoming a bigger part of what i do a lot of my work is um, concentrated in what I call the biblical roots of Christianity. So I study a lot of the Hebrew scriptures, um, a lot of even like uh, cultural backgrounds um, to understand the roots out of which Christianity grew. Because uh, what we do a lot in in my ministry is is an apologetics uh, teaching ministry. It's called defending the biblical roots of the Christian faith. So that's kind of where our focus is. And a lot of what we do is try to talk to anybody uh, talk to any teaching, I should say, along this spectrum from the you know the rugged legalism of of Torahism, which we'll talk about today, but also even things like progressive Christianity and things that kind of go off the deep end on the other side. So that's kind of what we're addressing. Our our big thing is biblical literacy and the Bible being the the ultimate authority. So we try to be a very biblically based, Christ centered uh, uh, address when when we're talking to whoever it might be, false teachers, or we're kind of bouncing around ideas or whatever it is. Those are our two, our two touch points, trying to make sure that we, we um, keep centered there. And then from there, we've been engaging and it's interesting how it kinda, you know, you start in one spot, this kind of Torahism, Hebrew roots, Torah observant Christianity. And then I've ended up having debates in the Jewish world and, and talking to folks about, again, like pr- progressive Christianity and things like that. So I'm just kind of going wherever the, the spirit tells me to go next.
0: Well, fantastic we love having you on the program Uh, i've read your book uh, i've enjoyed your youtube channel i would encourage people to go over there check it out and subscribe to it for more content like that but let's talk about our subject matter today uh, which is i think a phrase you coined torahism could Mm -hmm. you maybe explain to us what torahism is as you see it
2: Yeah, yeah yeah so you're right that is a phrase i came up with because the movement is made up of all these disparate little small groups It's not a monolithic thing. They don't have a Vatican. They don't have a doctrine that everyone adheres to. But so Torahism very, very succinctly is this. Well, let me let me first say this. I'm going to head off the misunderstandings because we'll hear this. The Torah is a beautiful and fundamental part of the Christian faith. Torahism is it, it describes any theology which teaches that Christians, that followers of Jesus are required to to keep the old covenant law, the Old Testament law, the Mosaic law, and if we don't do that, we're walking in sin and disobedience. So that's the, the nutshell of what Torahism is. Nobody, almost nobody in that movement would call themselves Torahists. They w- they'll refer to themselves as Torah keepers, Torah observant, that, that sort of thing. Hebrew roots is a more commonly known moniker, although many of them don't like to be called that either. Um, Pronomian is a newer, Clever term they've come up for themselves, you know, pro nomian, mean you know, pro law kind of thing. Um, so that's that's essentially what it is. It's any any um, belief system, any group that falls into that theology.
1: Okay, so um, help us understand how your view is different from Torahism, and then let's kind of swing to the other side and explain antinomianism. That'll be okay. a new term to some of our listeners. So. I'd love it if you could maybe kind of paint that spectrum for us, antinomianism on the one far side, Torahism on the other, and then somewhere in the middle, I think, is where you land. So could you explain all that for us?
2: Yeah, sure. So this spectrum would be of sort of a spectrum of legalism. So when we talk about legalistic, meaning are we under legal obligations, Torahism teaches that, as I've just mentioned, that all Christians are required To keep the mosaic law what does that mean that means saturday sabbath that means eating kosher keeping the torah feasts that means circumcision uh it it they throw this one in too for free it also means we don't celebrate christmas or easter because those are pagan holidays that's the argument that they'll have so that's torahism my view is that those things i just listed which i call mosaic rituals because i believe they're no longer legal obligations for for christians I believe those things are, I believe the New Testament teaches very clearly that those things are permitted, but not required. You want to eat kosher? Go for it. That's great. Have fun. Uh, you want to keep the Saturday Sabbath? I have no problem with any of that stuff. It's all permitted, but not required, in my opinion. When, where the line gets crossed into heresy is when this legalist side, this Torahism, Torah observers, whatever you call it, when they begin preaching, And requiring that of all the people around them and labeling me a sinner or you a sinner, you know, because you worked on a Saturday or because you had a ham sandwich and now you're a sinner and you don't love God. Right. So this is this is kind of where the difference is. I believe that, and I think First Corinthians nine is a great it's kind of to me, it's the most clearly encapsulated position. It's the part it's the uh, the passage where Paul says, hey, when I'm with people under the law i act as as one under the law even though i'm not under the law when i'm with people that aren't under the law well then i I don't keep the law i'm paraphrasing and he says i do it all for the sake of the gospel because i want everyone to be saved and to me that says nothing that screams permitted but not required um on the other hand now we've got antinomianism so anti against nomos is the law in greek so antinomianism is against the law, and this is the pendulum swung all the way to the other side. No one calls themselves an antinomian, an antinomian. Um, but what it is is people that think, you know, what this is—it's a hundred percent grace, and we can do whatever we want because we're forgiven. So they can go and you know do live it, live an immoral lifestyle, and think that God's going to be okay with it because they confess faith in Jesus and his sins, you know, his blood will wash all their sins away. Or maybe, I don't know, some of them might even think they're not sins anymore because Jesus, you know, broke the chains and now we're free. So it's this abuse of freedom on one side and it's abuse of the law on the other side. And, and you're correct that I, I fall right in the middle. I And I fall in the middle because I really believe the Bible teaches that that middle way.
0: Well, let's maybe try to give the best position of those who we would classify as Torahists, maybe Uh, not not to be confused with tourists, but uh, those who are going through and saying all of these mosaic laws, like if your brother um, has a wife and, you know, she uh, or he dies, you should remarry her. I mean, that's like Mosaic law, you know. Right. It would it would include some kind of polygamous sorts of acts? So, so all of the Mosaic laws, all of it being included and being kind of imported into the Christian faith from, you know, the way that you cut your hair, not allowing there to be, you know, sideburns rolling down your face. If if you shave off the sideburns, maybe I should say, uh, eating shellfish, those kinds of things. All of those things should be observant to Christians. The tourist would say, or the, those who would professed Torahism. Should we call them Torahists? That's hard to pronounce. To those know, who posi- uh, have the position of Torahism, say it, it again. A lot like tourists. It sounds a lot like tourists i'm going to try to avoid saying it as much as possible those who profess torahism let's say that uh they would say that at the at sinai when god gives the commandments to moses there's a mixed multitude and that's part of their argument is these laws weren't just given to israel these laws were actually given to israel
2: mixed multitude leaving egypt with israel so the idea being Uh, gentle Gentiles were mixed in with the Jews who were who were on the Exodus. And then the presumption is and I don't think it's a I don't think it's an unreasonable presumption that when they arrived at Mount Sinai, not too long later, six weeks, eight weeks later, maybe maybe three months, that those Gentiles were still with them. So as they sat at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God gave the law goes, this is how the the Torah keepers kind of present it the law was given to everyone in attendance and that in attendance included the Gentiles. And so they are part of the law. They're under the law. And there's a few big problems with that. I don't have a problem with the concept of Gentiles being at Sinai, even though the Bible doesn't explicitly say so. I think that's not unreasonable. The problem is that God made a covenant specifically with Israel. So Exodus 19 at the very beginning uh, verses one through six, talk god says hey this is for the people of israel this is for the descendants of jacob you know the house of jacob jacob being i'm sure you guys all know jacob was renamed israel by god and so when he talks about the house of jacob we're talking about the descendants of jacob so god said even if there were gentiles there god said hey this is who i'm making this arrangement with with the house of israel so the covenant was made and here's the thing about all those laws, and especially this whole section of laws called the holiness law or the purity laws that were, that were made specifically to set Israel apart from every other nation. So these are, these are, you know, in Hebrew, the word is kadosh, holy. And it means literally set apart for God. It means different. It means, you know, other. And so the idea, we see this in, in Deuteronomy 14, 21. God says, if, a, if an animal dies naturally, which meaning, you know, it wasn't ritually slaughtered, The israelites you're not allowed to eat that now you can give it to the sojourners which are gentiles living among you and they can eat it or he says you can sell it to foreigners which are gentiles not living among you but you israel cannot eat that because you are holy to me you're set aside so i think we have very we have a a number of very clear examples that no those laws weren't equally applied even in israel now god did allow gentiles to travel with Israel, to worship him, but, they, but he didn't, they weren't full-fledged citizens, so to speak. And what I'll just say here is that all of this is moot when it comes to the question of Christians today. Are Christians today required to do those things? In a, in a very real sense, it doesn't matter if the Gentiles were under the Old Covenant because the Old Covenant is done and gone. Hebrews 8, 13 says the old covenant has become obsolete. He says God made the old covenant obsolete. And so God gave us a new covenant. We are under the new covenant. And if you want to look at, I I tend to like the the phrase family of God. So all the believers in God, we're a family because, you know, there's so much language about being adopted in and being children of God. So if we adopt that sort of family uh, framework for looking at all believers in God, the believers in God today, God's family has different family rules. There's different rules for the household of God than there were back then. Nobody today, not even Jewish people today, in my opinion, are required to keep any of those Mosaic laws. So even if we want to grant the point, which I don't grant, but if we did want to grant that point that, hey, yeah, okay, Gentiles were part of that covenant as well, we have to then say, okay, well, that's fine. That's an interesting part of history, but today it doesn't matter because no one is required under the new covenant. So, hmm.
1: Now, what would you say? Because I've heard this argument before that based on Romans chapter 11, Gentiles are grafted into uh, the olive tree as a wild shoot, but we're grafted into the olive tree. And now, uh, you know, Paul's, Paul's analogy, we're all one, but they would say we're all Israel. And they would say that since we are all Israel, we therefore need to keep the law of Israel, the Mosaic law. What would you say to that argumentation based on Romans 11?
2: Well, I mean, the the basic argumentation is the same thing. Yes, we're grafted in, and you could say we're part of the Commonwealth of Israel, which is the term we see in Ephesians 2. So if we wanna say we're all grafted into Israel, I don't have a huge problem with that. If we're using the word Israel to mean the people of God. Um, and so if we if we look at it that way, yes, we are grafted in. And I like that you said into the olive tree, because some, some Torah keepers will just go right out and say, we were grafted into Israel. It doesn't quite say that, but that's the concept. But the, the point to me of, of Romans 11, he, and Paul's talking about Gentiles and, and Jews, and he's really talking, I think, a lot about how Gentiles who are grafted in you can't come in and remember when this was written, first century, right? So there's all this all these kind of pagan things that Gentile believers were bringing in. And and I think Paul's saying, look, no, we have to be you know, we have to be respectful and honor the Hebrew roots, literally, the Jewish roots of this faith. You're following a Jewish Messiah. And he came out of Israel. Jesus himself said, Salvation is from the Jews in John 4. So Paul Paul is saying, look, you need to respect the root of the tree when you come in, because his point though, his really big point here is faith, that the reason that the other branches, the natural branches were cut off was because of their lack of faith. And hey, you new branches that are grafted in, you can be cut off for the exact same reason, so don't get too comfortable. But I think it's important that we, that we look at the tree as sort of a shared history, a shared background um, and then, in the, and then later in Romans 11, Paul says, you know, he says famously, I think it's around verse 25, he talks about, you know, how Israel's going to be saved, how Israel's got a veil you know, for for a, for a period until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and that is how Israel's going to be saved. The, the, the Gentile believers are going to kind of provoke them to jealousy. Hey, why are you worshiping our God? That's our God, kind of thing, and they're going to come back to Jesus so i love that part so first of all it tells us that israel is going to be saved it does tell us that we are part of that overarching story going all the way back to abraham right abraham's the father as as paul says in galatians 3 we are the we are the ancestors or the descendants of abraham if we have faith in jesus that's how you're defined now and so if you say we're grafted into israel and we are israel okay we're obviously not political israel Uh, you know, we don't have Israeli passports, but we're grafted into the people of God and the people of God have a new set of rules than they did under the Mosaic covenant. So the old covenant rules have come to an end and, and they didn't, they weren't thrown out like garbage. They were fulfilled. They, they, they achieved their God ordained purposes and now we're under a different covenant.
0: Rob, you said a moment ago in Hebrews, you quoted Hebrews and talked about how the first covenant has kind of become obsolete, how the glory is kind of fading away. And this, this new glory of this new covenant has come. Uh, But what about the, the, the position that those who hold tourism will say, well, if I'm in Matthew chapter five, Jesus doesn't say that this glory is going to pass away. He says he's going to remain forever. And then he didn't come to change anything. Uh, I'll just quote it for those who aren't familiar with the text. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets um, or or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, uh, the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So uh, here we are told uh, by those who hold this Torahism, they'll say, hey, uh, if you, one, are not doing these things, you're not uh, following Sabbath, you're not eating kosher, you're not, uh, you know, kind of enforcing a kind of circumcision position on uh, Gentiles who are coming into the Christian faith, if you're not doing these things, one, you're not doing them, you're not, you're not going to be considered great in the kingdom of heaven, but two, you're teaching others not to do these things as well. You're going to be like least in the kingdom. How, how, would you, uh, how would you respond to those positions?
2: Okay, yeah, I mean, I've done a lot of work. That's for those that don't know, that's Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And that is a proof text of Torah keepers. Um, many like, like the organization 119 Ministries will, will make that their, their touchstone it's their rosetta stone they assume they they interpret that to mean that the law of moses will never change or go away until heaven and earth pass away and therefore everything else every other piece of scripture they read in the new testament goes through that filter well we know that the law of moses will is never going to end until heaven and earth end so now how should we interpret hebrews 8 kind of thing so there's a lot to unpack, and I'd encourage folks to go to my, my blog or my, or my YouTube channel because I've got a number of, um, uh, uh, of videos and even a white paper on this called Matthew 5:4 Perspectives. So I'll try to keep it short and um, if you, you feel free to pull out questions. but the way I look at it is this. First of all, he says in 5:17 he says, "For I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets." So that's a the law or the prophets. That's a very common New Testament way of talking about the entirety of the Hebrew Scriptures. So he's talking about more than just the law. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So this isn't a legal conversation. First of all, is what I would say. Um, secondly, when we get into um, when we get into the idea of he says he here's the weird thing about this, and I've done and I. I, hopefully that you guys don't mind getting a little bit technical here, but in in verse 18, there's two until clauses, right? Uh, uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So which one is it? Is it until heaven and earth pass away or until all is accomplished? And so we need to dig into that. I'll, I'll fast forward to the conclusion that I've come to about that, is that Jesus is saying, until heaven and earth pass away and it's a it's a common hebrew idiom that means no sooner should heaven and earth pass away than what i'm about to tell you not come true here's the reason i came to that conclusion jesus says he doesn't just say there won't be any major changes to what we're talking about he says not an iota not a dot will pass away right and so we have to then look at that and go okay has an iota or a dot of the entire old testament Passed away. Now we can we'll set aside the conversation about passed away for a moment and assume it means no longer in effect. So is is everything under the Mosaic Law still in effect uh, under the new covenant? Is the question. Has even an iota or a dot changed? And the big thing that I would point to is the 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 atoning sacrifice for sin. So Leviticus 17, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, required. A bull and a goat, and then the scapegoat, and this is, needs to happen every year, annually, repeated over and over. This needs to happen. This is how we atone for sin under the old covenant. Under the new covenant, Hebrews ten tells us that Jesus was our sacrifice once for all. That's Hebrews ten ten. Hebrews ten eighteen says there is no more sacri- uh, there is no more offering for sin because Jesus gave the perfect offering once for all. So here's here's a change the Mosaic law required annual sacrifices of of animals the shedding of blood at the temple. the new covenant doesn't require that even if we had a temple which we don't even if we had a Levitical priesthood who could carry out that sacrifice hebrews 10 eighteen says there is no longer any offering for sin Jesus did it once for all so uh we we're we're, we're met with a problem now because now we have well much more than a jot or a tittle of the old testament law of the entire you know the old testament scriptures has changed under the new testament and yet heaven and earth are still around so how do we how do we then reconcile that well i think we reconcile that by saying that jesus meant that nothing will pass away until all is accomplished and and the phrase uh not uh you know not um until heaven and earth pass away meant hey I'm telling you, heaven and earth would sooner pass away than this thing not happen, that I will accomplish everything, right? So Jesus set those terms. And so then he went and accomplished things. Now, now the thing you'll always hear about fr- from our Torah-keeping friends is, well, he said all is accomplished and all is not accomplished. And, and, you know, God has to come back or Jesus has to come back and we have a new heavens and a new earth, et cetera. So then the question needs to be, okay, fair enough, let's examine that do we then, how do we interpret all is accomplished? Do we, do, do we think that Jesus meant when God was done doing every last thing that he was ever going to do, that's when things will change? Um, and, of course, that's highly problematic. And so I believe the answer is found in Luke 24, verses 24 through 48. So Jesus now being resurrected, he's on the other side of the cross now, he comes to the disciples, you know, he, in the scene, he's, he's eating a piece of fish, which I think he's doing to kind of say, look, yeah, it's me. It's not a phantasm. This is flesh and bones, Jesus back with you. And then he says, remember all that stuff I told you about that needed to be accomplished. You are witnesses of it. And he tells what the things were that, that the, that the, that the Christ should suffer and die and be raised on the third day, etc. So I'm obviously paraphrasing Luke 24, but I believe, I believe what, luke 24 is telling us is that jesus accomplished everything that he needed to accomplish or he was sent to accomplish on his first mission to earth Um, and he'll obviously come back so he accomplished the the salvation and he'll be back for judgment later but so that's how i would read that Um, and i think what happens then is it becomes much more um harmonious with the rest of the new testament with the rest of the things that jesus taught and then also what's really cool about this passage, so you get to the, you know, the, the least of these and the greatest in the kingdom and all that, which is interesting because it's basically saying, hey, whether you keep the commandments, whether you don't keep the commandments, whether you teach people to do it or not, either way, you're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. It's just a matter of if you're least or great. So it's not a salvation thing. Verse 20 is huge. I tell you that unless your, your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, So we miss that a little bit today because we've already, you know, retroactively, we look back and go, oh, those hypocritical Pharisees. At the time, in first century Judaism, the Pharisees were the most righteous people in the Jewish community. They knew all the laws, they kept all the laws, and they added a bunch more. Of course, we know that. But the point is, if I'm a first century Jew listening to Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount and I hear that, the thing I'm instantly thinking is, how in the world am I ever going to be that righteous? There's no hope for me. And I think that's kind of the point that Jesus is making. The only righteousness that will ever get us into heaven is his righteousness. And so we have to place our faith in him so God can impute or credit his righteousness to us. That's the only way we can ever get to heaven. We can't do it on our own. That's kind of the point of what, what I think Jesus is teaching there in that passage. And so when you look at it like that, you obviously come to a lot of different conclusions than, than our Torah-keeping friends.
0: Okay, so in, in, to summarize, Matthew five, seventeen through 20, gives two clauses, one being heaven and earth will pass away, one is when all is fulfilled. It is ambiguous in the Greek whether he's saying it is when heaven and earth pass away or that it is when all is fulfilled. And yet, right. we have passages like in Luke twenty four forty four, where Jesus says, "All is fulfilled." And then we have New Testament passages saying things have changed, the priesthood has changed, the temple has changed. Um, uh, you know the. the the way that the sacrificial systems are in operation have changed. So there is definitive changes. So we can say if something's changed, it must mean that things have been fulfilled. And if we have verses that say things have been fulfilled, it then explains how Matthew chapter five uh, can explain how either Jesus is a liar because heaven and earth hasn't passed away, or we can harmonize the text saying we have verses that say this is fulfilled. And we have verses that say explicitly that things have changed. Did I, did I, that's a quick summarization of what you just said. Would there be anything that you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, you actually added something that I didn't quite call out, which is beautiful, that grammatically in the Greek, either clause could realistically be applied to that proposition in that statement. So it, so grammatically speaking, we can't go to the Greek and get our final answer. I, I did actually diagram it out. If you guys look at my uh, white paper on it, I kind of, you know, did a did a um, grammatical diagram to kind of see how I saw it breaking down. But yeah, you're right. You could technically read it either way. So the way we decide or the way we dig in and wrestle with the scriptures and try to figure out what it says is, like you said, it's by saying, OK, let's kind of chase down these options. And this is the thing that makes the most sense and and harmonizes the most with everything else we read in the New Testament, and so I think that inner con- contradiction about things having changed, heaven and earth are still here. That's the thing that I think our Torah keeping friends miss.
0: That's good, Rob. Let me ask you a question about like the historical. Protestant position that we've held for, I mean, 500 years. That there's kind of three different, not three uses of the law. That's a different, different conversation entirely. Oh, yeah. uh, but the 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 three kind of categories within the law: civil, ceremonial, and moral. Um, yeah. Would you? hold and intend to believe that the Bible seems to suggest, uh, categorically, there's not an explicit proof text, there's not a Bible verse, kind of like the Trinity. We acknowledge that it's there because the Bible professes that it's there, though th- that specific language is not used of the divine of the Godhead. The, the word Trinity is not used. Would you acknowledge right. that the Bible seems to point to these three different kinds of categories? And, and how would you make that kind of appeal to those individuals who are holding to a strict uh, view of Torahism?
2: Yeah, so that comes up a lot, actually, and I'm, I've actually been um, given a hard time more than once for for mentioning those categories. And so let me just say up front, the Bible doesn't say, you know, thus the Lord says, here's the moral stuff, here's the ceremonial stuff, right? So those categories are not uh, distinguished in Scripture, but they are very much taught through Scripture. So these are categories, these are man-made categories that describe like, what would you call all of these laws that have to do with right and wrong, about murder and greed and adultery and just doing moral things, right? Is that the same thing as the law that says don't mix fabrics? Okay, well, no, they're, you, if you want to start talking about categories, and by the way, this is a very rabbinic way of looking at the Old Testament. They've actually got a different, they've got a different breakdown of how these how these commandments break down. Uh, They've got their own categories that are also not biblical. But it's the way that a finite human mind can sort of process what's going on there. Now, I wouldn't say these are all in this category, and therefore this has to happen to them. So I, I, I don't use those categories to make grand, sweeping theological statements. But they are very helpful in understanding the reasoning behind what God has given us. And one of the important distinctions that they help us realize is that the moral laws, so maybe I don't use that term in case someone's triggered, but the laws that are all dealing with issues of right and wrong, and, and which I include love and God in that, um, all predate the law of Moses. So we don't say today that murder is wrong because the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not murder. Murder's been wrong since Cain killed Abel, right? And so the same thing we don't say adultery's wrong because of the Ten Commandments. We, we say, well, no, sexual immorality was, was wrong since Sodom and Gomorrah. So even Jews would ab- would agree, and there's a Messianic Jewish organization that put out a great statement about this, that the law of Moses was not some sort of moral revelation, that the moral laws, again, that's our human category, but the laws dealing with right and wrong have been there since God created everything because, and here's the reason why, they are all Grounded in God's unchanging moral perfection, you know, a, a perfect holy God can't decide murder's okay now and then a hundred years later. Nah, I think murder's out now, right? So it make it makes no sense. Morality is grounded in God's unchanging nature. You've got other things like that are that we might call civil or ceremonial, right? Laws about property and inheritance and and, and all those sorts of things. You wouldn't say that God can't change those rules, right? Or eating. That's a big one. I think that's a really big one. So you look at something like the kosher food laws. Has God always said that this list of animals in Leviticus 11 are unclean? No, he hasn't. Matter of fact, there's a decent argument to be made. I'm not sure I'm 100% in this, but that from Adam until Noah, the world was vegetarian. There's no speaking of eating meat at all. And what's interesting is after the flood, Genesis 9 verses 1 through 4, God tells Moses, it's very similar to what He tells Adam in the garden. So this is kind of a, a renewing; it's like a, a new start over. He says, "All every moving, every living thing that moves shall be food for you." That's what God says. He, he puts no prohibition on which animals can and can't be eaten. Even though I know in, in Genesis seven it talks about Noah bringing clean and unclean animals onto the ark, but the but the thing is when. After he got off the ark and the flood was done, God said, you can eat it all. The only prohibition he gave was against eating blood in, in in Genesis 9. So you have God, you know, because in Genesis 2, God tells Adam, all these green living things are for you. He tells Noah, centuries later, you can eat every moving thing that lives. Centuries after that, he tells the Israelites, here's a bunch of stuff I don't want you to eat. This is going to be unholy for you. It's going to be unclean, right? Right. Now, a lot of people get into this idea of those things are unclean because they're unhealthy and whatever. Uh, that, that's not what the Bible says. If we want to talk about the nutritional value of pork, that's a separate argument that's never brought up in the Bible. It, it was given for the exact reason that we talked about earlier to set Israel apart. And so God didn't give Israel a prohibition against eating pork because it was immoral. He gave it to them because he wanted them to be different from every other nation. So every other nation's enjoying their pork chops. And Israel says, no thanks, because they're different, not because it's immoral. So, you know, you know what I mean? So there's a difference there between ceremonial, which God can establish at any time he wants, and moral, which would actually impugn the character of God if the, if they ever changed. Yeah, Does that make sense? I feel uh, like I'm wandering. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, you know, I'm preaching through Acts right now. When I was uh, in Acts chapters 10 and 11, Uh, All the scholars noted that there was this obvious allusion to the story of Noah when Peter sees the sheet coming down and he sees these creatures and and it's coming down by the four corners, which makes you think the four corners of the earth. And get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he sees all kinds of creatures, including unclean and just the language that it uses. He sees creeping things. It repeats. Sorry. uh, It repeats. A, just basically the commission to Noah, and it's and it's what the commentators say is that it's uh, it's like God is saying, "Hey, uh, back in the days of Noah, when they were allowed to eat everything, it's going to be like that again." And Gentiles are coming in too. And of course, G- Acts 11 is not just about food; it's about people. But anyway, right. but that kind of dovetails into the Acts 15 conversation because that's a big conversation, big yeah. debate over. Do we let, you know, do we make people act Jewish in order to be saved? Do we make guys get circumcised who weren't circumcised in order to be saved or not? And, you know, they go back and forth and Paul stands up and says this, Peter says that and recounts the story I just told you in Acts 10 and 11. And then James quotes a little bit of scripture from Amos chapter nine, and then James, uh, after he says that, which the scripture in Acts chapter nine, or sorry, in Amos chapter nine points to Gentiles coming into the kingdom and David's tent being rebuilt, all this. Anyway, so we're in Acts 15. It's the Jerusalem Council, and they're deciding about these pagan Gentiles coming into the kingdom. How Jewish do they need to be? And he just said, Well, let's not make it too hard for the Gentiles. And this is James's conclusion. Right. And therefore, my judgment is. We should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. Um, So with circumcision in the background, his implication is we're not going to make them be circumcised in order to come into the kingdom. And he says, but you should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every side every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so I think yeah. modern Christians read this. We're kind of like, well, Hey, what do I do with this? I mean, you know, on the idols conversation, it gets a little complicated. In first Corinthians, Paul says, well, you can eat food if it's uh, food sacrificed to idols, if it's in the marketplace, but if it's in the temple, you can't do that. So there's a little nuance there. Don't see much nuance here. Acts 15, sexual immorality. Everybody's like, yep. Yep. That's bad in the old. That's bad in the new. Got it. Strangled. I don't know any Christians who are like, man, was this hamburger like a strangled cow? You know, like nobody's thinking about that. And from blood, uh, you know, so just talk us through this. Like, how do we process this? And then he mentions like from ancient generations, Moses has been read in every city. Wait, wait, wait. James, you just argued like we don't need to worry about this law of Moses uh, as it pertains to circumcision. But now you're saying some mosaic stuff seems like it might be relevant. Help us sort through.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is a very common passage as well when when you're talking to Torah keepers. Um, So, yeah, Acts 15, the Jerusalem Council, the first ever that we know of convened council of the church. And we have a record of the entire thing. We even have a, a copy of the letter they wrote, which is really cool. I love that. I I just secretly hope one day we can actually find the original letter, which would be amazing. Um, so what happened was, I mean, at the very beginning, you, you, you kind of, you kind of covered all the big points, but I wanted to mention one thing at the beginning of acts 15, it talks about Paul and Barnabas getting in no small disagreement with some people from the circumcision party about, they were specifically saying a terrible party. Really? I know exactly. That's not (laughs) not a party. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I was walking around with scissors. Watch out. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. That, that was that's what right you know I say. I you like a first sin- Never Okay. So um, they, say that they set the parameter for the discussion. We tell them that they need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. That's the, that's the scope of the conversation. So they go, no, you don't need to head over to Jerusalem, have this big council to talk about that issue. Do Gentiles need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses? Like you said, that's the question. That's before the council. So, when we look at the way they worded things and, and, and what they went through, if you look at that discussion, great great point about too about uh, Amos nine. What they're talking about really is saying, okay, well let me actually let me start over. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at it from the other angle because I think this is the easier way to understand it. Why did they give those four specific requirements or, or prohibitions? And this is where we'll hear our Torah keeping friends say. I've actually had one person tell me this. They use this phrase, which is where I got it. Those are a starter pack of commands. They they, they figure they'll give the Gentiles those things right away. So they'll kind of get the lay of the land. And then over time, they're going to begin to learn the rest of the law, the rest of the new covenant, because they'll say in Acts 15, 21, James says, because Moses has been read in the synagogues and, and all that stuff. Right. And so. There's a a couple big problems with looking at it that way. One of them is, in in, I think it's John 16, 2, Jesus tells his disciples, you're going to be kicked out of the synagogues. And elsewhere he says, you're going to be, this is him prophesying, you're going to be dragged in front of the synagogues and in front of the courts and thrown in prison. So Jesus prophesies that there's not going to be welcome arms for his followers in the synagogues. Right. And that's an important that's actually a prophecy that very much came true um, in the first century. Even that's when that's when the the Jewish um, rabbis at the time put out this benediction against heretics. It's called the Haberkat Hamanim. And it's it's a they had 18 benedictions that everyone had to read aloud together in the synagogue, and this particular one was railing against the Nazarenes or the the, the followers of the Nazarene. So imagine being a Jewish believer in Jesus, of which there were many at the time, sitting in your neighborhood synagogue, and now you have to read this thing condemning followers of Jesus. Obviously, it made it quite uncomfortable. So nothing in history and nothing in the New Testament would support the idea that this was a starter pack, and then you learn the rest of the law in the synagogues so we actually have evidence that suggests quite the opposite we also have a complete lack of evidence that anything like that ever happened there's nothing in the new testament about anybody any any gentile believer being taught the law or being expected to keep the whole law it's also
0: entirely inconsistent with the nature of god like god doesn't go to sinai and go hey here's a few laws guys i'll give you the rest later he's like this is what it is to be moral this is it is how it is to worship me follow them all to a t he didn't give like them, a learning artifacts. curve in Exodus. Why would he do that for us today? It makes no There's sense. No,
2: yeah. yeah, no, exactly. There's no pattern of that in scripture. Um, and it's a little bit silly because it means just do these four things, all the rest of your sins I'm okay with for a while until you learn. Uh, yeah. So anyway, it's a, it, as you look at it, if you just kind of examine it, it's a kind of a silly position to, to come out with. Well, then the question becomes, and it's a very legitimate question, well, why those four? Three of them are dietary related and one sexual immorality. And here is, to me, what I think is the way to interpret this that completely harmonizes with all the rest that we read in Acts and everything that we read in the New Testament. They were given, those those requirements were given as a matter of unity, right? So you've got new Gentile believers coming from all these backgrounds, pagan of different sorts, and the the committee, the council knew, okay, we've got a bunch of new believers in Jesus. And at the time, it was, there might've been a lot more Jews even than Gentiles. Obviously that changed later, but it was still a very Jewish movement. And so they're saying, look at, we got all these guys coming in. We see some clashes about to happen. If, if the Gentiles coming in, they have no reason, if I'm a Gentile back then, why would I avoid strangled food? That doesn't make sense. I'm, I'm, I'll eat it. I don't mind. Right. And so, and and the sexual immorality, It's it's well known that Judaism, Second Temple Judaism especially, but kind of all throughout history, has just always had this elevated ethic for sex. For, for you know, the sexual ethic of Judaism was above and more noble than anyone else, and certainly in the pagan world where you know temple prostitutes and all that were, was kind of how things worked. And so these are things where the Gentiles would come in like bull in a china shop and go, "Oh, I didn't know this would offend you, right?" And so they're saying, "Look." And I love the way that James words that. So in I think it's verses 28 and 29, we we see the final two lines of the letter, right? And it, it seemed good to us that you should, to put no greater burden on you than this. And actually, they say it's endorsed by the Holy Spirit. It seemed it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and us, not to great, not to burden you with anything more than this. And then the four, and then the four prohibitions, right? And he says, "If you do these things, you'll do well. If you keep these things, you'll do well. Farewell, and, you know." So it's it's not a "thou shalt" commandment type of passage. It's very much a look. If you do these things, you're going to get along just fine with your new Jewish brothers and sisters when you guys are eating together and worshiping together and and doing life together. Now that you're all part of the same body, so I think unity is our answer.
0: Hmm. That's good. I like that. I, I want to ask because we've we've gone through the Torah. The Torahism in in, in its positions. I found that when I engage with uh, people who hold Torahism, they want to go to Exodus, they want to go to Leviticus. They want to go to Matthew 5. They want to go to the verses of Scripture that uphold their position, but it does seem as if they are unable to harmonize it with the extremely clear texts of Scripture, not to follow yeah. certain new moons and festivals and Sabbaths, uh, not, not necessarily to to uh, the obligation of certain dietary laws uh, to, to refuse or, or, or withstand even this kind of forced circumcision position. And, and if you say, hey, you can eat, out of liberty to, to eat whatever you, you're happy to eat. As long as there's not blood in the thing, you should right. be willingly and, and freely given to eat what you want. And, and you shouldn't feel obligated to be circumcised. Well, they'll turn around and say, hey, stop teaching antinomianism. Stop teaching lawlessness. You're teaching people to stop observing the law of God. And I typically respond, the law of God commands you not to uh, mandate certain days of worship. The law of God, because the New Testament is law, it is, it is is God-given commandment and prescription. The law of God this is not to condemn people of what they eat, new moons or Sabbaths. Can you maybe give us New Testament law, if you will? Could you give us the verses in the New Testament that tell us, that command us, one, that we're not obligated to follow certain dietary restrictions and not forced to uh, the practice of circumcision? Could you weigh in on some of that?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And you're right. There is a lot there. You, you mentioned Colossians 2, 16 and 17, right? Let no one judge you on matters of food and drink or on a, a new moon or a Sabbath, right? And, and then it goes on to tell you why. These are a shadow of things to come. Christ is the substance, right? So Paul's putting those in perspective. And here's here's another verse, that one we just read, Colossians 2, also supports this idea of permitted but not required. Paul doesn't say stop with your food laws and your Sabbaths. He says, don't let anyone judge you. And to me, that means some will wanna keep it, some won't wanna keep it. We don't judge each other about that. Romans 14 echoes the exact same thing. So you've got Paul writing to the Roman church, right? And we've got all this sort of infighting going on. In Romans 14, he talks about, look, he he talks about the weak in faith and the strong in faith. And, And so he says the weak in faith will eat only vegetables, right? In other words, these are you know, understood to be the, the Jewish or the either either Jewish or Judaizers that wanna keep the kosher food laws and out of an abundance of caution, they're not even gonna eat, eat any meat, just to be sure. Then you've got the strong in faith, which Paul puts himself in that category in, in Romans 15.1. Um, so Paul, Paul doesn't say this guy's right and that guy's wrong. He says, stop judging each other, let every, he says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of food and drink, right? But, but peace and joy. And so he's really not, he, he, again, he's not taking a side. He's saying, knock it off, knock it off with the fighting. And this is what I was getting at in Acts 15. Unity is way more important than food in the New Testament. Unity is a New Testament command food is not you do what you want eat, eat either way Paul says in Romans 14: 14, 14 I'm convinced that everything's clean but he says if you cause another person to stumble by what you eat then you're sinning right so again unity is greater than food or with the food that we eat so we've got a lot of we've got a lot of things like that we've got Galatians 3 actually the whole book of Galatians we've uh, got a Bible study on that on my on my um, on my YouTube channel we go through all all of Galatians with an apologetics kind of lens and pull out all these amazing verses that when I started the study, I didn't even realize how much it it talked about this sort of thing. Right. And Paul's saying, no, Paul says in Galatians three, 23, 4, five, right in there, he's talking about, look, the law was our guardian until, until Christ came. And now that Christ has come, we're no longer under that guardian. We're no longer under the law. So he tells us even why the law was given. So the law wasn't bad. It's not horrible. It wasn't thrown away and and abolished and destroyed and all that. The law did God-ordained things, and that was point us to Christ. It's pointing us, even still today, that's the role that the law plays in the life of a Christian. When we look back, we don't cut out the law of Moses and and, and eject that from our Bibles. No, that's part of Holy Scripture. That was breathed by God. It still serves a purpose today. What it does is it reminds us us of our sins, right? It, It points us to Jesus to say, It's like, you know, the Bible tells us over and over again, and Israel is our model, that we can't live up to God's standards under our own power. It's just not possible. Israel could never do it. And if you're honest with yourself and you're reading the Old Testament, you're going, oh my gosh, Israel's worshiping idols again. What's going on? How do they not know this? God is leading them. And then you have to go, oh, I guess I'm Israel because I do the same thing. (laughs) I I lose track. I, 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 I walk away from the things I know are right. And so I think Israel is the model for us. And Jesus came and said, look, guys, if you put your faith in me, this is the only this is the only hope you have. As, as we read in Hebrews four, this is how we enter God's rest is by putting our faith in Jesus, um, not by struggling and striving. You know, I, there's so many verses that talk about grace versus works, right, about faith versus works. Galatians 2.16 is a great one, too. It, it, three times in one sentence, Paul, the master teacher, three times in one single sentence says, we are saved by faith in Jesus, not by works of the law. He repeats that thing in three different ways in the single sentence. It's amazing. Yeah.
1: Okay. So whenever you're talking with a Torahist and the person, uh, let's say that you bring up, I mean, we kind of breeze through the Romans 14, the Colossians 2, uh, some of these passages, uh that directly address the issue of food laws and uh, just ceremonial laws and that sort of thing. So uh, let's just pick one of them, okay? And okay. I want to know what the what a Torahist would say to you. So I'm going to be you for a moment and you be them, okay? Colossians 2. All right. So I'm saying, hey, guys, listen, this whole like you got to do the Sabbath a certain way and food laws and uh and new moon and festival and like all this jewish stuff like listen it says in colossians 2 therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, and with regard to a festival or a new moon or a sabbath these are a shadow of the things to come but the substance belongs to christ so guys you're you're missing it because you you're putting all your focus on shadows and what we have already in jesus like the the new moons and the festivals and the Sabbath, they pointed us to Jesus. You know, the Sabbath, it's, it's a day of rest. But Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you rest. And, uh, and you know, we distinguish between f- uh, clean and unclean food. But Jesus says in Mark 7, I declare all foods clean. And, and that, that distinction, it points to Jesus as the one who cleanses us from our sins. And so these are just shadows. And so the substance is in Jesus. And it's right there in Colossians 2. So what do you guys do with that? What's the argument you hear in
2: reverse? Most common, if I want to boil it down to a single statement, yeah, but you're taking that out of context. That's the thing. That's what they'll start with. So, for example, Colossians 2. That, Paul's not saying don't let people judge you whether or not you keep them. He's talking about how they need to keep them the proper mosaic way because they were having syncretism in the church at the time, and they were keeping those rituals in a different way that was wrong. So these, this is the, it, I don't want to be flippant or anything, but some of these arguments really are exegetically um, weak. And so they'll come to you and say that, and then you'll say, great, let's look through Colossians 2. Let's talk about if that's what could, Paul could have been talking about. It's, he's not saying don't judge whether or not you keep them. He's, don't, he's saying don't let them judge you for keeping them in the correct Mosaic way. How you, the, the subject is how you keep those things, not if you keep those things. So that's what they would say. Mark 7, I just did a big thing on that too. Uh, it's actually in, in my book that's coming out next month. It's a whole whole section on that. About almost a quarter of the book is on that. Mark seven nineteen. 19, uh, thus he declared all foods clean.
1: That's yep. a big statement. It's real that direct. It's,
2: I know. So how do you get around that? If I'm a Torah keeper, the, like for example, okay, why would you want to get around it? Why don't you just read it at face value? Okay, we'll set that aside for a moment. If you want to get around it, here's what happens. On the extreme end, because there's a range. Some, some Torah keepers are very reasonable, and they're not forcing anyone to do anything. Others are drawing a hard line between Torah keepers keepers and the church and throwing out the church and saying they teach you everything backwards and very divisive. But what you'll hear about Mark 7:19, one of the things is that text... Is not in the original manuscripts that was added in later very common that is absolutely false i've even in the book that's coming out it's called what god has made clean i actually show a screen grab of the codex sinaiticus with those greek words outlined so we can see exactly where they are for those that are willingly admit that they're in the original manuscripts which they are then the next thing that they'll go to is to say well those are interpreted wrong. Like one example, one one Hebrew roots teacher said, in the Greek, and he went through the Greek grammar, we kind of went back and forth about it, but he went through the Greek grammar and said, that that Greek word there, katharitson, which means to cleanse, that's not talking about Jesus cleansing things, that's talking about your stomach cleansing things. And so, and they go to the King James version of that verse, which says, um, thus purging all meats out into the latrine, or something like that. And so his whole point was, I mean, in essence, I'm I'm seriously not making fun of anyone, but his point was, in Scripture, in the Torah, poop is not considered unclean ritually. So, when you when you eat the food and it goes out into the latrine, then that is purifying the food. That's what Jesus was talking about. Um, so they will get into exegetical or hermeneutical issues when they're trying to reinterpret things. Um, most of the time, it's I'm sorry. I, I, it's just my opinion. The Torah keepers are generally awfully nice people, and they love God and they know their Bible, but they're way off on a lot of this stuff exegetically. Um, and so, what happens is now, how do you, how do, how do I, with someone that I love that's in this world, how do I reason with them? And that becomes a huge problem because of. The fact that it's not like you know, I, I mean, I'm a professor, so all scholarship is all about who said th- this. This guy said this. This guy said something a little different. This guy degrees, disagrees with you. Lots, a range of opinions in scholarship, right? So I'm I'm comfortable with opposing viewpoints or differing viewpoints, but when you try to try to lean into um, these sort of theological hermeneutical uh, discussions, there's a veil. Oftentimes, there, there's a um, it's, uh, it's very much a spirit of deception, a spirit of legalism that comes over these people. I had a woman on my program and, and did an interview with her, one of my more, more popular videos. Her name's Catherine, and she was in the Hebrew Roots world for a while and came out, and we talked about what brought her out and what it was like when you were in there. And she said, and this just makes sense from everything I deal with on a daily basis, she said, these same verses today, Rob, that, that make sense to me that you're talking about, when I was in the movement, they were just flying by my head. I was not, they weren't, they weren't landing. I was not even giving them, you know, consideration. They just didn't fit into my paradigm. So I kind of just didn't think about them, you know? And so what we have here is not a theological error where someone, you know, like in math, right? Well, they did their sums and one of them was wrong and their conclusion, their answer was wrong because of that. So we'll just show them where they made that one little error and that'll fix everything. It's not like that at all. at the beginning when I was getting into this, I really honestly, because I've been doing this for five years now in this Torahism world, when I first got into this, I thought, all right, that's it. I'm going to find that silver bullet verse that they that's indisputable, that'll cut the legs out from under this Torahism theology, and that's going to be amazing. And what happened was I found 12 or 13 of those verses, but I had completely... <laughs> misunderstood what the problem was it, it's not a theological reckoning what it is is a is a heart thing it's a commitment a lot of it a lot of times it's identity there's a lot of um, there's a lot of psychology going on sort of emotional commitments so me mr like nerdy professor coming at this stuff I oftentimes I'll miss what's going on because I'm not even aware that oh you're not even on the same page exegetically you're trying to prove you're trying to, uh, support your presuppositions, right? Confirmation bias. And so once I understood that I I started to kind of taking a little bit of a different approach. So there's no one verse that you can use to talk someone out of this. There's no, I, at least I've never found it. And, And I've talked to folks who've told me, Hey, your book really helped me a lot. I was thinking about getting into it and I read your stuff and it made sense. And you were the only, you know, person, um, like directly addressing, the things that this Torah teacher or that Torah teacher are telling me. Um, Other people were all the way in and, you know, I've had, you know, anyway, we don't need to get into the ugly side of it, but yeah, it's a, it's a bigger issue than we might think. It's not like Calvinism and, you know.
0: Arminianism. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's much bigger. I agree. I want to, for a second, comment on Colossians 2. It is impossible to take this interpretation and say that this has to do with syncretism And you're following these things in an inappropriate way. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question or food or drink, regulation, festival, new moons or Sabbaths. So the argument would be these aren't real Sabbaths. These are syncretized Sabbaths. These aren't, you know, uh, this isn't the dietary laws of Israel, it's dietary laws of Israel plus pagan religions. But he says these are shadows of things to come. But the substance belongs to christ it couldn't it couldn't possibly be that pagan syncretisms are shadows of christ it couldn't possibly right. be that it only has to be the pure observance of well those said. things and yeah, he goes I on that yeah he, he goes on to talk about asceticism like to abstain from certain foods and he's like that has an appearance of godliness but it does nothing to actually crucify the flesh. Like it does nothing to actually prevent you from living in sin just because you're going to follow these diet, these abstaining rules, uh, clearly right. talking about mosaic law. So I just uh, again for my my tour observing friends, you know, I, I find that statement you just made. You just made it. You said, hey. Uh, This is more than a theological argument. This is a relational sort of commitment. I found myself, you know, uh, over dinner with a a good buddy of mine. We were chatting about this issue. He's on the Torahism side. I am not. And, And he would say, what about this verse in Exodus? What about this verse in Leviticus? What about these verses? And I would say, look, my New Testament verses harmonize the Old Testament verses you're quoting your Old Testament verses that you're quoting cannot harmonize with the New Testament verses that we are seeing right here. And he had no argument for the New Testament verses about Uh, circumcision and dietary laws. And what I found out is he just stopped talking to me. He wasn't interested in engaging with the text of scripture because there was an identity issue of, I want to be, and this is a good issue. Like it's actually a good motivation. I want to be faithful to the law of God. God has given me rules. I want to be faithful to them. I want to be a man of God. I want to be a woman of God. And if God said do it, I want to say yes, sir. No matter if it's weird or looks odd, and it feels weird in our culture, I just want to say yes to the command of God. It's like a good motivation. But when you confront it to say, I "I, I think you're wrong. Right,
1: but it's it's like what Paul says. So difficult. It's like what Paul says in Romans 10 when he's like, I could testify they have a zeal for God, but it's not. But it's according to the law. It's according to works, not by grace. That's right and that's my issue with this and usually usually in our interview shows we we play a little more impartial we just ask the questions but (laughs) i'm just gonna say like if you're out there and you are in the hebrew roots movement you need to get out like this is dangerous this is what the whole letter of galatians was written about galatians 2 21 i do not nullify the grace of god for if righteousness were through the law then Christ died for no purpose. Now, I know there's a range. If you're saying that this is for justification, then that's a false gospel. Like you need to keep food laws in, the other, like to, in order to be saved. False gospel. If right. you're saying, well, you don't need to do it to be saved, but you still need to do it to please God. Uh, hmm. Well, it, like maybe you're like, at least make space for someone like me in heaven, but uh, I just get like a lower cloud than you or something like that. I say it's still really bad. It's still really bad. It still well, normalizes yeah. the grace of God. Uh, uh, just let me finish one more thing. So Galatians sure, 5.3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And I'm just telling you, like, if you're saying, like, this stuff is necessary, it's all necessary, and nobody's kept that law except Jesus. So put right. your faith in Jesus who kept the law for us as the perfect Israelite. And when you place your faith in him, we are therefore in Christ and join the commonwealth of Israel. We be, uh, That's Ephesians 2. We become a holy nation, uh, royal priesthood, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And, and, and so the point that I want to make here is, is this is like a real compromise it's a jesus and i don't like it it's that's bad true. and and i know like you're probably in a community that's saying all these things or you're hearing a new thing and i haven't heard that and i'm just telling you get away from it get away from it now if you want to keep the law you want to keep the jewish law you want to wear tassels on the side of your garment you want to do these things uh, do it because it fulfills you and you like it, like, and I like your approach to to this, Rob, like to each his own if you want to do it for you. But if you're going to put that on me and if you're going to put that on other people, yeah. you're going to have to answer to God for this. And I'm just saying, mm-hmm. go with what the historic church has held. And the historic church has repudiated this teaching
2: over and over 100%. and over again. And not, they haven't done it arbitrarily, that it's all based in scripture. It, And that's the biggest thing. The biggest danger of all of this, and I think this is what isn't seen. It's a salvation issue, like you said. And what happens is, and this is so much like our enemy would want to have happen. I am leaning in to get closer to God, and I'm off by a degree, and now I've completely missed him. And so what I've seen happen so often is when you enter this uh, faith system, whatever you want to call it, ever so slowly, almost imperceptibly, sometimes your focus shifts away from Jesus, it shifts towards Moses. And it shifts towards yourself, your own behavior. Have I have I eaten correctly, you know, I go to the deli, is that kosher meat, I make sure you know, all this stuff, and all of a sudden, you're not even thinking about Jesus, you're thinking about Moses, you're thinking about the laws. And if you look through some of these teachers, I've tested many teachings on my my YouTube channel, shockingly, uh, it, it, it's shockingly few times do they talk about the gospel or Jesus at all. So, so what happens is it's very subtly shifting our focus away. We still feel pious. We still feel like we're following God's laws. But what happens is we've left our Savior behind, and now we're trying to do it on our own. And that is the that to me that's the biggest danger of all, because that's the road that leads to death. And Jesus is the yeah. only road that leads to life.
0: Rob, Amen. where does this stuff come from? I mean, like you said, it, we, it's been repudiated through church history. It's absent yeah. from church history. We don't see it. It's gone. It, like, as far as I am aware, reemerges under false prophets like Ellen White in the Seventh-day Advents. Not to say that all Seventh-day Advents are apostate. There's been quite a bit of refer- reform and readoption of the Trinity and justification by grace through faith and some of those traditions. But it appears as if the resurgence of uh, dietary laws, Sabbath keeping have come from historically defined false prophets. like is am I wrong in assuming that this is a new invention and this is absent from church history?
2: Uh, not entirely wrong, but let me give you one caveat. Torahism today is the Judaizers of the Bible. It, they're teaching the same thing. Here's the big, big difference. The Judaizers in the Bible were operating in the fallout of this massive theological change. I, I, sometimes I likened it to a, to a time bomb that blew up on the timeline of history, right? This theological bomb exploded. There's still dust in the air. I was raised a Jew, but now Jesus came. What do I do with all this stuff? There was legitimate confusion because I'm Jewish. Jesus is Jewish and I want other people to Get in the, you know, get in the fold, and that, and we're all going to follow Jesus this way. So the Judaizers' mistake is understandable. Torahism today is the inverse of that. It is one hundred percent Gentiles. There are no Jews in the Torahism, Hebrew roots, Torah keeping That's right. world. Number two, now the Judaizers didn't have a New Testament. The New Testament was kind of written to clear up that confusion at that time. Like, what changed? What did? What does it mean about Jesus? The the Torahists today have a complete canon of New Testament writings and two thousand years of living it out, and extremely bright and intelligent teachers along the way uh, that have guided us. So, to me, there's no excuse for the modern Torahist. The way I would want to empathize with the Judaizers and their their understandable mistake. So where Judaizer, where Torahism began, as far as I can tell, I've looked into this late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, you had like the Millerite movement and the Sabbatarian movement, right? And it was like this tree, this tree, these roots that kept growing up. And so you've got Seventh-day Adventists and you've got all these other things coming out. One of the big uh, roots or, or paths that, that emerged was, was uh, Herbert Armstrong and the Worldwide Church of God in the 1920s, I think it was, 1920s and 30s. And if you read some of their material, it's eerily similar to what Torahists are saying today. It's crazy. So that's kind of where I look at the very uh, beginnings of it. They had the exact same theology. Now that church grew and eventually split because the main part of that church said, wait a second, this is wrong. They like renounced that heresy and, and became mainstream in their theology. But a, but a small remnant said, no, 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 we still want to keep the Torah. And they did an offshoot. But anyway, so there are, there are historical roots, but they're not super deep. You don't see this in my mind. I can't find this prior to 1800s in, in mm-hmm. history, except for the Judaizers.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. Well... We, we need to wrap this show. Man, I, I could sit here and talk to you for hours. I, I enjoy your content. I enjoy your YouTube channel, your books. Uh, here, I've got it right here. I've got a couple copies in the studio, but you should go pick it up. Torahism, uh, Are Christians Required to Keep the Mosaic Law by R.L. Solberg. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it uh, basically anywhere uh, that sells the books. So, uh, Rob, thank you so much for coming on the program. I really appreciate it. I uh, enjoyed your responses to this stuff and love to have you back on the show again. For those of you who are watching uh, right now, it's the first time you've watched the show, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, maybe share it around to uh, whoever you might think need the content. Uh, we hope that this video has been blessing and encouragement to you. Uh, we would encourage you to search out the scriptures, study these things for yourself to make sure that these things can be found in the scriptures. And I'm convinced if you uh, are, are, are reading the Bible and just saying, hey, Holy Spirit, lead me that you're going to come to the conclusions that the historic church has always come to conclusions on these issues, uh, which is that you can do these things out of liberty but not out of obligation and you shouldn't do it out of obligation and you shouldn't encourage others to do them out of obligation either. Uh, And if you're looking for a place to kind of start your journey and learning that process, I would encourage you to pick up tourism uh, by Solberg here. It's going to be a great resource for you guys. Thank you so much for tuning into this program. We are going to see you next Wednesday. We'll have a taped show next Wednesday uh, from four to 5 PM central time responding to the cessationist documentary. Once again, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, Solberg, uh, Rob, sorry. Uh, I'm going to sign off here. Screen's going to go black. If you stay uh, with us for just a moment uh, as we sign off. Thank you guys. We'll see you next time.